0: You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farrery and equine science with Dr Simon Curtis. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Hoof Care Essentials Foundation and their partners W.F. Young Incorporated.
1: I caught up with Rodney King at the Australian Farriers Convention, but of course Rodney He's not an Australian. He'd flown over from New Zealand. He's from the South Island. And he's quite rare in that he came from a non, shall we say, horse background. The woman in his life, the lady in his life, was horsey. And he got into horses that way and then he started to shoe. New Zealand is probably the most do-it-yourself society in the Western world. It's so cut off. Imports cost so much that New Zealanders tend to try to do things themselves first. But, you know, Rodney went from shoeing or learning to shoe himself with just a little bit of help to working at the biggest equine veterinary hospital in Kentucky in the USA in the space of 10 years. So how did he do that? I think it was worth interviewing just to talk to him about that. My old pet subject, suspensory ligament, Desmite has come in sports horses comes up, and we have another look at that. And Rodney has his take on it. But anyway, enjoy an interview with somebody who came a long way very quickly. I'm having a break from the Australian Barriers Conference, and one of my fellow speakers is here. Rodney King gave a presentation this morning. He's flown out from New Zealand to be a speaker here at the conference, so I've taken the opportunity to speak to him because I guess when I go to New Zealand in a few days, I'm not going to catch up with him. So welcome, Rodney. Thank you, Dr. Curtis. <laughs> well, that's, nice to be we're, here. We've got to keep it. We've got to keep it a <laughs> more informal than that. But anyway, yeah, so uh, here in my pop-up recording studio. So the first thing is, Rodney, um, what part of
0: New Zealand are you based? So I'm in an, uh, an area called North Canterbury, yeah. and North Canterbury is uh, middle of the South Island, so we are just half an hour or so north of Christchurch, the uh, the city that was devastated by the earthquakes. And just north of us is Kaikoura, which was also devastated by earthquakes uh, two years ago. So uh, we're kind of right in the middle of the shaky stuff.
1: Yeah, and I, I, the only other time I visited New Zealand was 10 years ago. And that was just immediately after the, mm-hmm. and of course Christchurch
0: was uh, devastated, wasn't it? And Absolutely. It hasn't really recovered, has it? No, I took a drive around town uh, last week, and uh, it's it's still a bomb site in town. There's been a lot of rebuild um, and a lot of new growth, but there's a lot of empty lots there, and a lot of rubble, and a lot of buildings that are fenced off that are still, uh, you know, waiting to be either rebuilt or torn down, or yeah, I'm, the place is a mess. Because a lot of the economy just moved out, didn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it did. And a lot of the uh, the population they they moved away from Christchurch. They got worried about more earthquakes coming in and yeah. and disrupting them. So people got a little bit scared and moved away. Okay, that's a bit of a negative way
1: for us to start. But actually, there's a huge amounts of positives about New Zealand, isn't there? I mean, it is. Anybody that's ever been there, it's a beautiful island. It has that benefit of being lowly populated, four and a half million people yeah, yeah, four on and an, half an area the size of Britain
0: or even yeah, bigger than yeah, Britain. Yeah, it's, it's bigger than Britain. Yeah, yeah. And it, oh, thanks it's, for that. It is, yeah, it's quite <laughs> incredible. It, it, you don't probably appreciate it when you live there, but uh, when you come back home after being away, it is quite almost overwhelming, the, the beauty of the place. It, it is a scenic paradise, you know, and, and we take it for granted like you do yeah. when you live there. you know. Uh, but it is a nice place to live. It's got a great laid back feel and a good lifestyle and it's, yeah, it's a good place to live. Well I,
1: well, I was told that 20 odd years ago as a farrier, if you go to New Zealand, don't expect to make a million, but do expect to have a really good
0: lifestyle. That's, that's the place, yeah. I don't think you're ever going to get rich living in New Zealand, especially shoeing horses. But uh, yeah, it is a nice place to live and you can have a terrific lifestyle. Yeah. So how did you get into horses? Well, it's my wife's fault. Well, I blame my wife for many things. But. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I hadn't had anything to do with horses uh, prior to meeting my wife, and it happened that she had a horse. So, uh, in uh, yeah, in my youth, as I was chasing my wife, I got introduced to horses, and uh, that, that's sort of how I, I started off. I ended up with a horse and started riding, and and uh, just sort of grew from there, really. But as a Kiwi, you must have been in other sport in your youth. You know, I'm not a particularly sporty kind of a person. I uh, I don't mind. Yeah, unique. I I played a lot of cricket when I was a young fella. Yeah. Um, probably three or four nights a week, I was playing cricket of different different sorts: indoor cricket, outdoor cricket, twilight cricket. It was all all good to me. Um, rugby, never been into rugby. I was, wow. uh, I was a weed of a kid, and um, yeah, I couldn't take the hits. It just yeah, it wasn't me at all.
1: Well, well I never played rugby because I went to a soccer play in school, but right. um, it's probably one of my regrets in life because I think. Though I'm not particularly big, I'm more designed.
0: I think farriers actually, you know, they have strong
1: size. They do well at rugby,
0: don't they? I, yeah, I played one season as a kid and absolutely hated it. Uh, but having said that, a few years ago, I got asked to uh, have a go at the seniors uh, in our local town. And uh, I was really keen to do it. But then that thing pops up in your head, I don't need broken thumbs or fingers if no, I'm going to go and no, you know, no. shoe horses. So I, I opted out of that one. I think it's, it's for the harder fellas anyway. Yeah, yeah.
1: certainly is. Okay, so you got into horses late in life, really. yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And, and so how
0: did you get into farriery? New Zealand and New Zealanders are renowned for do-it-yourself, okay? Every, everywhere you go, it's DIY. You, you rebuild your home yourself because you can, and, and you'll have a go at it because you save some money. It, it was no different for us as kids when my wife had her horse, I had my horse, and we were poor. We didn't have any money. We were trying to pay the mortgage, and uh, so you just have a go at it yourself. And we were lucky, the the place we kept our horses at, the uh, guy that owned the place, shot his own standard breads, and so he had a little bit of gear there, and he said, I'll give you a hand, and you can use my gear, and I'll show you how. So that was good. The farrier had come, and he'd shoe my wife's horse, and then in between times, I'd do a reshoe on it, much to the farrier's horror. <laughs> and he'd come back next time, and rumble away and say, What have you done to buy a horse? you know. (laughs) So anyway, he'd fix it back up, but he was a great guy and he gave me a lot of help along the way. He would give me tips and advice and he didn't mind me doing that in between reshoe. Uh he was he was very gracious about the whole deal and he would come and give me a hand. I recall him coming out home one day and uh I was I think I'd read the Hickman's book at that point and uh he threw a lump of steel at me and said, Here, stick that in the fire and make a shoe So I did. I used his gear, rudimentary gear that he had and uh knocked up a horseshoe and and it's still hanging on my wall at the moment. So that was kind of my... Oh, you didn't risk my, it on a horse then? No, no, it was, uh, <laughs> no, no. no. Um, still hanging up at home. It's not a bad shoe. When you look back at it, you can see the, the flaws in it and the, and the flaws in his gear as well. But yeah, uh, yeah it's still up there. And uh, yeah, I, I think he was a great inspiration to me, a very nice old fellow that, that gave me a lot of help starting out.
1: And is there any official training in New Zealand? Is there any farrier school? We
0: have the New Zealand Farriers Association, which run training courses. Uh, they're a block course. they kind of designed for apprentice farriers uh, working under a, an approved training farrier. And they go and do these block courses and have an assessment and get a little bit further education uh, a couple of times a year and get a bit of direction as to where they need to improve their skills, where they've got to be studying for the next course, what they're they're trying to achieve.
1: So, yeah, and there's an
0: examination process at the end of it. Oh, excellent. Okay,
1: so you've become a farrier and you're semi-self-taught and semi helped And at
0: what point did you go to America? I started shoeing horses in about 96 and I moved to the States in 2008. So I'd done, you know, 10, 11 years of shoeing at home and I was qualified at home by that point. And I'd also, I'd been to the States and got my, uh, CF and then my C J F yeah. in the US. Um, I'd actually been over on a scholarship through the New Zealand Horseshoe Company at the time, and I'd got to go and visit Rudin Riddle. Yeah, uh, while I was on my scholarship, Which and it was fantastic. <laughs> biggest equine hospital in the world. In the world. Yeah, it was fantastic, and uh, and I got on great with the guys there, and it, it just sort of transpired. I was at home had a, had an English a young English farrier out home working with me. And he subscribed to the Forge magazine in the UK online at the time. And he said, that place you uh, said you'd visited in the States has got a job job application opening up uh, in Kentucky. And I thought, this is interesting. So I got online and had a look and applied for the job. And the guys remembered me in the States and shot me over for the interview. And that was kind of that. Ended up in the States. Okay, so you were working for the podiatry department. Yes.
1: And... And that's pretty big, isn't it? Oh, it
0: yeah, it, it's a big step from shoeing backyard horses in New Zealand to shoeing top-end sport horses and lame horses that are coming in to have problems fixed in a very busy, well-respected clinic like that. However, you're working with terrific vets who are also pretty handy farriers yeah. and uh, you've got a lot of guidance. But what they needed at the time was a, a decent farrier, a good farrier in there to help them out achieve what they wanted to achieve. And that's where I came in. So I think it was... Uh, a, Mutually beneficial arrangement. They got a good farrier, and I got some good education from the veterinarians. So I, I helped boost their shoeing at the time, and they helped me become more
1: educated. And you, you would have done work in the hospital, but also an ambulatory practice
0: where you went outside. We did. We. Uh, I was initially. I think I was employed to be the the farrier that stayed on site in the shop, but. You know, there's only so much work that comes in and out of the shop and they needed help outside uh, with their normal uh, run going around the, the stud farms. So I ended up out in the, out in the wilderness with, uh, with the veterinarians and helping out, mostly Dr. Morrison. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, a lot of my time was spent outside of the clinic, but uh, we'd have days where we'd spend the day inside uh, working at the shop, which, yeah, I enjoyed that. So tell us what a, a typical case would be,
1: just to give us an example, of it, that came into the hospital that you had to deal with. Uh
0: Aside from the the laminitic cases in Kentucky, which are it's like a epidemic proportion yeah. of laminitis in the, in that part of the wilderness, um, we dealt with a lot of sport horse work um, and a lot of suspensory type injuries. So, you know the sport horses over there, they, that was very very common. We saw so many horses that were shod long in the toe and low in the heels, and and whether that was man made or Conformational, you know, that's hard to put a pinpoint on, but we dealt with a lot of that type of uh, suspensory type injuries, heel pain type injuries, all that long toe, low heel type of stuff. Yeah, that was that was very uh, what typical. What would be a typical trimming and shoeing regime
1: for for a horse like that?
0: Uh, so the the suspensory ones, we, we used a lot of normal suspensory shoes with a wide web toe, but the the heel pain type horses. Um, Dr. Morrison had uh, developed the Morrison Roller Shoes, which I'm, you know, a few people will have heard of those, yeah. the uh, aluminium shoe, and we'd weld a solid heel plate into the back half of those shoes and using dental impression material we could support and unload the back half of the foot, take away any concussion or uh, upward pressure into the deep flexor and navicular, um, and that would just help those horses out, they seem to like that. Anything with heel pain, navicular issues, yeah, they really like those shoes, and of course they've got the breakover well back underneath the toe, so you've alleviated a lot of deep flexor tension on the uh, on that breakover phase. They were a
1: great shoe. So why do you think we've got this? Well, you say an epidemic of laminitis, but what about the epidemic of suspensory ligament desmitis in sports horses? Because nobody yeah. talked about this
0: twenty years ago. Right, and is it uh, that it's easier to uh, diagnose now? Are the vets better at diagnosing it? We, you know we've come a long way in that respect or is it because we're jumping bigger heights or people are not exercising their horses when they're younger and uh, making them do harder work when they get older I don't know what the uh, you know, the surfaces that's yeah the that, that's another yeah the surfaces, the surfaces have change. changed and I mean yeah we, we saw that a lot going into the poly surfaces in the states and there were new injuries that we hadn't seen before so yeah what, what the surfaces have been in between times we've gone away from grass and natural surfaces to uh, more unnatural surfaces
1: yeah so, uh, I mean, it's still a uh, it's still a question that's been looked at by lots of people. But even me, as a, almost an outsider, I always did some sports horses. Mm-hmm. But as I say, we you, you never heard this 20 years ago. Right. And yet it's the biggest, uh, shall we say, problem that involves farriery on, on you know, fit, active sports horses. Yes. It? And, yep. uh, you know, so hopefully there's people working to find the answer for us. I hope so. Even if that answer is something to do with the management or the surfaces. And yeah, yeah. Is it overwork? Is it underfit? I don't know. Yeah. Not everything can be fixed just by a trim and a shoe. I You're think right. We always need to have to remind ourselves that's of exactly that. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, was it just at Ruden and Riddle your whole time in the States? My whole was time gone?
0: was at Ruden and Riddle, that's correct. Yeah, three, just over three years yeah. spent there. Yeah, it was great. Okay, so you had three
1: years at Ruden and Riddle, this fantastic equine hospital. and and no doubt picked up lots of techniques. You've just described one to us. Um, But I wonder, what was it that
0: you returned to New Zealand with? Coming back home, I had a whole new appreciation of what you can achieve. Now, before I left New Zealand to go to the States, it was very basic. Shoeing was always very basic to me. If you couldn't fix it with a normal set of shoes or a bar shoe on it, there was there wasn't anything else i could offer it i didn't have that depth of knowledge or the experience and also i didn't know what what i could expect out of a veterinarian Uh, after being at Ridden riddle working with those top-end vets that have had so much experience they can find a diagnosis 99 percent of the time we were coming up with a good diagnosis and then we could work on a plan for shoeing it and even though a number of those different diagnoses would use the same shoeing technique. We'd still come up with that diagnosis and 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 come up with an appropriate plan. So what that's given me back home is even if I can't quite get, you know, the diagnosis I think uh, out of the veterinarian, then I've still got some tools there that I think, well, maybe this shoe is going to do that on this type of uh, lameness or, or where I think this lameness is coming from. So I've yeah uh, you know, I've got a lot more tools now that I can I can throw at a horse as as far as trying to fix a problem manage my way out of a problem put it that way well i,
1: I used to say a similar thing about rostiles when i was attached there which is i hate to say it, the second biggest equine hospital <laughs> in the world um and i used to say to people look even if your horse can't be fixed they will find out what's wrong with it and i think you know there's still too much in the world where people start a treatment when they don't know Exactly sure. what's wrong. It has to be, you know, more accurate diagnosis. Absolutely, so that helps us as farriers.
0: Absolutely, it's it's really hard working in the dark, trying to uh, bluff your way through fixing something if you don't exactly know what's wrong with it. It's okay if you can narrow it down on a foot to, palmar heel pain. That's you know that's something you can work yeah. with. But if you've got no diagnosis and it's just lame, it's it's very hard to come up with a, a treatment plan that's going to be successful for you and the horse.
1: Yeah, it cuts your chances. It certainly does. So the other thing I was going to ask you about, is: so you returned to New Zealand, uh, what about the ability to buy materials and, and even types of shoes, was that restricted or are they completely available here in New Zealand?
0: Well look, when I came back from New Zealand I was used to using particular products in the States and uh, the, there were some of them that were available at home, some weren't available the downside is most of the ones that aren't available are so expensive it's cost prohibitive to even get them in and use them. So you just wipe those off your list of shoes and you come up with plan B. And you'll come up with something a little bit more economical to use. So you've just got to, you know, DIY Kiwi do-it-yourself you know, around that and, and come up with another plan. Something that's a little bit more achievable, a little bit, you know, it's, it's something that people can afford to have done to their horse. If they can't afford to do it or we can't get the product, they just pull the shoes and turn them out. That doesn't, you know, it doesn't really help the horse. It just takes longer to fix it. <laughs> well, yeah,
1: and and to be quite honest, if a horse is needed to be ridden, whether it's a racehorse or a show jumper or what, that that's what's employed to do. And I often think part of our job is okay, not to cut corners, but to return it to, to its normal. They're no good to us if they're not in no, work. Are they? No, they? it's a just very costing money. Expensive lump for me, but mean, so I actually think just okay, we we know that some things by rest just like mm-hmm. people but often in a competitive environment
0: that that doesn't really help you know the, the right. seasons proceeding well you know it's a short season for a lot of these yeah. uh, disciplines so if it's not if you can't help it out now you know it's missed this season so we we try and be a little bit proactive and get on top of things before the season and manage our way through the season but yeah you've got to have the the equipment to do that we're very lucky now we've got some great suppliers back home now that that if they haven't got it they can get it for us and and uh yeah. It's moved on a long way from 10 years ago when I moved home basically, so yeah. So before you, well, I think it was before you moved home, uh,
1: you took the associate of the Worship Company of Farriers. I did. Um, and you did that in the
0: Kentucky Horseshoeing School. In oh, I did that in the uh, Heartland, Heartland, Heartland Horseshoeing School course. at Chris Gregory's. Yes, Chris yes, Gregory's. I got sorry. that
1: wrong. That just shows you my memory. It's nothing to do with my age, playing tricks on me, Rodney, but yes, I I stand corrected. That's fine. Um, I can remember you taking it, and I've sort of mixed up the two venues. So the first thing
0: is, what motivated you to take that examination? You know, I, I like to educate myself. I've got, I don't know if it's just me, but I have the worst memory. I can't retain information. So the more exams I do, the more uh, papers I try and write, or the more times I talk to people about things, I remember stuff better. And that helps me, you know, retain all this knowledge and, and useful information that I've got rattling around inside my head. If I don't use it, or I have no reason to use it, it just evaporates away, and I don't know where it goes, but it goes.
1: Now, well, all of us only retain the information that we use
0: regularly. Right, so it's not just me, that's good. No, it's not just you, <laughs> take it from me, it's all of us. So, um, yeah, I... I've always liked the idea of educating myself as much as i can and trying to learn as much as i can and this sort of thing helps me yeah, retain that information so I, I wanted to have a go at it um, regardless of the fact that it was in the u.s or it was going to be in the uk that didn't matter to me but it was convenient that it was the first time it was had been held outside the uk and i just happened to be living in you know yeah. the same country as it was going to so it was a you know, it was probably still a thousand miles away well it wasn't too far as a no, no. flight it wasn't too far <laughs> from kentucky
1: so but how did you prepare for that examination? Because it is a tough exam, there's no
0: doubt about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I had the advantage, obviously, I was working in a hospital. Yeah. So you're de- dealing every day with veterinary issues, you're dealing with uh, anatomy and uh, biomechanics of the horse. It's, you're, you're dealing with radiographs every day. It, that, was, that was the easy side of it. I had well, to sit well, down and people, read some books. But and I'm,
1: oh. I'm glad you, because you've reminded me of that, that, that one of the things I say to farriers is, get yourself to attached to a vet and a vet hospital because the whole basis of the associate is is not that it's a little bit harder than a diploma it's that it's a separate exam it's how do we as farriers use these skills and this knowledge to work on horses with conditions illnesses diseases of the hoof injuries to the hoof injuries to the leg and so, as you say, that's exactly what you were doing.
0: It was the perfect place to be, you know, yeah. and I, I always considered the AW as a as a therapeutic exam. Um, and just the, the environment I was in just was conducive to me uh, getting through that. So, I mean, I had to still sit down you and study. Had to do the books. Still had to sit down and do the books and make sure I, you know, was on the right track. And, you know, because your, your basic anatomy, you're, yeah. you're using some of it day to day, and there's other little things that you, you know, they slip out of my head. Yeah. I was competing uh, regularly, while I was in the states, so the shoe making and what have you, that was, you know, that was yeah. fine. I, I didn't have to worry about that too much, and and I think there was uh, at the time a lot of guys overthinking, uh, you know, worrying worrying too much yeah. about what they were going to face on the day. Don't worry about it. Get there and uh, if you if and you've got your forging thing, skills, what's you know. the
1: first thing that an examiner does? They put a nail in the shoe.
0: That's what I've oh, always done. It's basic. The nail doesn't fit. It doesn't matter how shiny the shoe is. It's the same at a competition, right? Yeah. If the nails don't go on the holes, that's no good. If it doesn't fit the foot, that's no good. It doesn't matter how flashy your shoe is, it's got to go on the foot, it's got to be able to be nailed on, it's got to serve a purpose.
1: But I, I actually still remember, and we're not allowed to say these sort of things as examiners, but 10 years later, I can tell you, it was a nice job that you did. I remember the. Examiner's. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, the exam- uh, I thought well, the, the shoes respected. were okay, you know, but they they no, were, no, they were basic a, shoes. They went nice on the feet. Job. So, well, well I, thank you. That's uh, that's a and, compliment. And uh, and you you were a credit, really. Um, were you the first New Zealander
0: to? Yeah, yeah, I Yeah, I'd be the uh, most overqualified farrier in the Southern Hemisphere. Exactly. Qualified in New Zealand and the US and the UK. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think uh, I think I'm s- probably the only New Zealander with an AW.
1: Yeah, I, I don't want to say that and somebody yeah. gets straight in yeah. touch with me and say, hey, yeah. you've forgotten me, but
0: um, I, I, I think you probably are. I, I know there's uh, a couple of English farriers at home that have it, but uh, yeah. Yeah, that have either gone out yeah. to New Zealand with it that's or yeah. to the UK but, take uh, yeah. it.
1: As, as a Kiwi, yeah I, think, yeah, I reckon you are, so that's something. It that, might be, yeah. Yeah. So for somebody who wasn't great on the sporting field, you've, you've represented your country well, well I try my best at the sharing. that's right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so well done for that. Thank you.
0: Okay, um, well, I have to ask the question, was it worthwhile? Absolutely. You know, I've gone on to keep trying to professionalise my business and try and, uh, you know, I I like helping horses and I like trying to fix problems. And and I don't know that necessarily having the qualification makes much difference to that per se, but uh, that extra knowledge that I, I gained from doing that, it gives you a little bit more confidence that you should be able to do that kind of thing. And then I've been able to help other guys, go and get their AW as well, which that's been fantastic. Well, I've I've done a couple of clinics here in Australia helping these Australian farriers, um, you know, pre-AWCF exam. And there's half a dozen of those guys I think now with with their AWCF and I can be quite proud and say that I gave them a hand to help them along the way to getting that. So it's absolutely been worth it. Well, you said about the retention of knowledge
1: and actually, and you did say about teaching. Funny enough, I reckon it helps me to retain knowledge given lectures and exams because, uh, you know, so using that knowledge is, is one way to retain it. And so I'm glad it was worthwhile. And I always tell anybody who's either thinking of the associate or the fellowship, look, nowhere on that certificate does it say you can now charge $10 more or $20 more. But I don't see too many fellows or too many associates going bankrupt. So, right. so there is this less tangible effect that as you say you have more confidence and I think you give over to your clients, you know, more gravitas and more confidence. Absolutely, And yes. so, so it's not measurable, but it does happen. I've so. got a,
0: I do have to be honest, I, I don't think uh, there'd be more than four of my customers at home that even know what qualifications I have. Yeah. To them, it doesn't matter. What matters to them is that they have sound horses and that I can get the job done and, and that's pretty much the end of it. But uh, it matters to me. Well, I,
1: I have never, ever
0: had a client ask me my qualifications.
1: I mean, vets are more interested mm-hmm. because vets love letters after their name Absolutely. more than us. So, so they actually would tend to say, what does this mean and, and how did you get it? And uh, But yeah, horse owners, I'm afraid, we've never really won them over right. in that respect. <laughs> yeah. and, and as we know, you're, you're only as good as the last horse you, you shot. So. Well, <laughs> let's not get back to the negative. <laughs> All right. So, Rodney, at this point, I usually ask a deep philosophical question. And basically that is, what do you think is the most important thing that you have learned in your life? Crikey. That's a good question, isn't it? The most important thing oh, I've learned you in are. my life. I like to think I thought up a good one.
0: <laughs> now you're barricading. Yeah, okay. no, I, don't judge. Don't judge. That's the most important thing I've, I've learned in my life. And it doesn't matter what you are taking that to, whether it's in your personal life or with uh, yeah, the... It, do, it doesn't matter, but don't judge. When you look at somebody else's work, don't judge. You don't know. You don't know what they were doing on that day. You don't know how that horse was going. You don't judge that. You don't judge people by the first time you see them and have a look at them. You, don't, you just try not to judge stuff. That's. I think that's a good life lesson for most people. Don't judge. Well, we've
1: done about 20 or 25 podcasts now, and you're the first one that's given me that. As the answer so thank you for that that's all right listen it's been great speaking to you rodney um both of us need to get back to this conference we do yes but um anyway thank you for coming into my pop-up studio that's <laughs> been my pleasure this. all right thanks a lot thank rodney. you very much all right thanks i hope you enjoyed that interview with rodney king a man who learned to shoe horses quickly Uh, but expanded his horizons by going off to the United States of America, getting a job at the biggest veterinary hospital in the world. And then after a few years, he returned to New Zealand with a different perspective. And he used the skills and knowledge that he acquired in the USA to improve his abilities and in turn his business in New Zealand. He talked about taking... The associate of the Worship Company of Ferries in, in the USA, and he reminded me that that was actually the first time they were running the, in the States or outside of the UK, altogether. And I was one of his examiners, and of course it was quite nice uh, because during an exam you have to be formal, and there's not a lot of interaction with the candidates outside of the syllabus. So to talk over things was great and ask him why he took the associate and how he got through it. And also, I think probably quite importantly, we talked about the intangible effect of passing the AWCF on on anyone's business. And of course, the argument often from farriers who don't take those exams, and nobody has to, and I'm not suggesting everybody should, but sometimes people say, Well, I won't earn a penny more from doing it. And I hope that from our discussion that that's put to bed a little bit because I actually think you do. I don't think it's direct. Indirectly, I think the person that uses an examination as a target, and that's all they are really, the piece of paper goes on your wall, you can be proud about it, but it's what you learn on the journey to get there that matters. And I think that came out in this podcast with Rodney. As always, thank you for listening.
0: We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.